Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Julie Patarin-Josec. Julie, it's a great pleasure to meet you. I deeply admire your work, both in its profundity and its range. So it's great to be here with you. And I wonder if you might share with us, I'm going to let listen to it on a secret. I know you're in Boston. <laughs> this is a deep secret. Well, I'm pretending it's a secret. But I wondered if I could ask you, Julie, what is concerning you, interesting you, dynamizing you, preoccupying you at the moment? Uh, well, thank you uh, for having me. I'm very excited to be here for this podcast episode. So as you said, I'm currently in Boston. And the reason for that is that I came to Chicago for a conference that was two weeks ago. Uh, and I just stayed in Chicago. So I'm still uh, I'm still here and traveling to see some friends. And one of my reasons for staying in Chicago is because I, I work with a a colleague who shares the same um, methodological and theoretical interest, especially in filmmaking. So we use uh, experimental film as an ethnographic method. Um, so we are like at the intersection of sociology, visual studies and experimental practice that can also involve performance uh, at some point. Uh, so currently, this is what I'm working on, uh, finding ways to explore uh, more engaging methods uh, to circulate visually engaged scholarship uh, through film and experimental practice and performance, uh, because I've always been very interested in uh, using my own body as a, as a medium for my scholarship. Uh, which is also why I'm very interested in the ethnographic method in particular, and uh, why I use performance as part of my research, because there is this this relationship to the body as, as a way to, to produce and to experience and to circulate knowledge based on affect and positionality. And um, yeah, so that's basically what I'm interested in currently. If I could pick up on the last topic you mentioned, one of your essays that's had a big effect on me, and I'm sure on many who've read it, is Un Tabou Résilien, where, right. uh, speaking of the body, you talk about sexuality and ethnography. Absolutely. But it's not sexuality... In a, in a loving, positive sense, it's actually the abuse of sexual power, I think, that you're most interested in, if I've read it correctly. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that essay and how that relates to this question of the body and ethnography more generally and affect? That's a great question. So, right, this article is, is more about what intimacy and sex in general in the ethnographic process, but mostly about uh, gender-based violence and sexual assault. Like, what does, how does the ethnographer um, react to this situation when they happen in the field? And I wanted to write this article because, as a student and uh, an early career scholar, I didn't find any thorough publications on that. There are a few articles 
published in English on, for instance, the experience of rape during an ethnographic fieldwork, which is mm. extremely traumatic, and how how the ethnographer can manage to build something around this trauma as as part of the research process. So I wanted to to write this article in French because there is zero literature on that. Um, and I thought it was important. I wanted students maybe interested in this kind of questions or students who might have experienced this kind of situation to have something to make sense of this, this kind of experiences. Uh, and most importantly, I wanted them to, to see that it's totally legitimate to ask questions around these topics because if if something is invisibilized in, in the academic literature, we tend to, to think: Is can I think about it? Can I can I be interested in this kind of question? Is it is it scientific enough? Is it legitimate? Um, so yeah, this was my main motivation, like to try to visibilize a bit more. It's a wonderful essay, and I do hope it appears in English as well, um, because I think it, as you say, there is more of this literature in English. Archaeology is particularly renowned for sexual harassment of young women on field trips and long periods together with groups of men often, senior mm. men. Um, and we all know that this is a major issue in academia as in other institutions. But it's interesting you say that this isn't much discussed in the French literature because just in the last year there's been an explosion of discussion about this in France, hasn't there? Not so much in academia, but in literature, in film, in journalism, and so on. More and more women Absolutely. come forward. Last, yeah. last five years, especially I would say last couple of years. Is that right to say? Yeah, I would say also for the past two years about that. And it's so exciting to see these discussions uh, emerging from all over the place. Uh, we're talking about yeah, sexual assault, we're talking about consent, we're talking about queer relationships, and it's so amazing to see this kind of discussion uh, a bit more uh, present in the public sphere, absolutely. And uh, it matters a lot in qualitative methods in social science, uh, including in ethnography, because ethnography is, is really based on um, immersing yourself in a community for a long term and so experiencing trauma as part of this process has really a strong impact on the kind of knowledge you produce, what you choose to say, what you what you write in, a, in an academic article or what you the kind of data you 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 silence. Um, and and this has obviously an impact on, on what you say to the world on a research topic. In terms of more positive things about the body and affect and ethnography, yeah. I focused on the negative because this article spoke so powerfully to me. But perhaps you could tell us some of the slightly more positive things about the body, sexuality, the self and affect in ethnography, because it doesn't only have to be about grotesque power relations and exploitation and sexual violence. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, ethnography is, is in the first place based on relationship of trust among people and how you came to develop this trust and this care 
um, along the way during the research. And this is why I love this method. And um, over the years, what I learned really about ethnography or social scientific knowledge in general is, is this notion of positionality, like how, I mean, I've been always very much influenced by critical epistemologies, including feminist uh, theory in science and technology studies, for instance, like the standpoint theory, this idea that you cannot really have an objective or axiological neutral uh, standpoint on anything because everything you can know is based on your own experience and the position you you have within the social space. Um, so based on your education, your body, uh, the docility of this body and the way you experience and process emotions, uh, everything has, has an impact on how it, it shapes your understanding of the world. And uh, any kind of allegedly objective standpoint is actually in feminist theory um, a dominant standpoint, like a, a standard masculine standard that invisibilizes uh, this, all the subjectivities that just don't fit this specific standard. And it's really much related to uh, to to the body in itself because the body serves really as a, a cognitive matrix to to assimilate knowledge about the world and circulate this knowledge again uh, to the world, I guess. Sorry to be looking away a bit. The cat is going slightly crazy. <laughs> I don't know what the word for bossy boots is in French. The word, there's no real word in English, but in Spanish it's a great word, mandon. Mon petit chat, c'est un mandon. You know, he, <laughs> he runs the house. Is there a word in French for somebody who takes control of everything? Uh, I don't know. Probably. Um, although, I mean, it's it's so large. I wouldn't know which word would apply. I know. Well, yeah. do you know you know the word bossy boots in English? If yeah. It's, there's, it's not really a formal noun. It's colloquial. It's idiomatic. We don't have a a, a word like that in English, but they have... They have ones that are can be gendered male or female in in Spanish, mandon or mandona, and he is mon petit chat, c'est un mandon, un mandon total. Anyway, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what, I think what you're saying is very important and consequential, and of course, it arises both from feminist and uh, standpoint theory, and related developments in anthropology and in ethnographic sociology, a recognition of the importance of writing, of presence, of one's own influence in places. Whereas if we go back 50 years, people didn't even learn the languages of the places that they went to discover or write their PhDs on or whatever, let alone mm -hmm. Recognizing the problems of immersion and so on. So I think that's important. Speaking of immersion, I have to ask you about water. Because water, along with various other natural things in the world, is very important in your work. So my first question is, and I can see you're having a drink of water as I ask you this. <laughs> Unless it's vodka, of course. My first question, oh, no, it's water. It's water. It's water. did you grow up near water? 
Uh, not really, not really. I was born uh, close to Paris, uh, and there was no really water there. Uh, although I grew up close to the ocean. Uh -huh. uh, so. so, yeah, and water has always been very unconsciously important because, I mean, I couldn't imagine myself even more today uh, living in a place that doesn't have at least a, a river, uh, although I prefer yeah. having the ocean or the sea, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, although it was very unconscious uh, when I was younger, um, mm. I guess it has always been very important. And, I mean, I started to be interested in water uh, after my previous research, which was about outer space. And for me, it was interesting to explore those two extremes, like outer space and and <laughs> and, and the underwater uh, environments. There are a lot of similarities between those two environments. Could you tell us about those similarities? Because my next question was going to be about outer space, but perhaps we could put water yes. together with outer space. One place that's very wet, one place that's very dry. Yeah, you're right. Um, well, the mostly common thing between those two is that the human body is not meant to survive in those environments by itself. It needs a life support system to survive, like a respiratory system or a pressurized system also, because there is a question of different pressure uh, that is less, I mean, it decreases in outer space and it increases uh, underwater. The deeper you go, the the the, the most uh, the higher is the the pressure, and the body's human body is not meant to to survive there. So that's interesting because that means not only you have to rely on a, a technological interface in the way you interact with this environment, but that also means that your your you have to to train your body to rely on this technology. There is the, this whole training, both for astronauts and for divers, on how to use this equipment uh, in a way like to master the danger of these natural environments. There's always this, this so Western, it's very present in the Western culture, the way we, we understand natural environments as a resource we can exploit and also something that can be dangerous eventually for the human body uh, that needs to be controlled in a way uh, through the use of uh, technologies. But it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the, my motivation to um towards water was also related to this relationship with the body we, we talked a, a bit about mm. because i'm really interested in general in experiencing myself what i'm studying so when i was studying astronauts uh, i became a pilot i learned how to fly small airplanes because i wanted to to experience myself some of the sensations you can field uh, in the cockpit of, of uh, at the time of a space shuttle in the United States, for instance, and how your body is like uh, integrated in a whole e ecosystem of artifacts and technologies uh, and how it reacts to it. And I did the same with divers. Uh, like I wanted to experience water myself. So I became a diver and 
and I joined a, a training of commercial diving, which is the the most uh, risky, uh, one of the the most dangerous diving activities with cave diving, um, because so many things could happen, and eventually you could die. <laughs> Like you could get poisoned by the air you breathe, uh, because of in commercial diving you also um, manipulate sometimes very heavy objects or instruments with a uh, a strong power. Uh, if you drill underwater, for instance, to install a pipe, uh, you could have a, a concrete bed falling on your head, and lots of things can happen. And it's interesting to experience this because it's really hard to imagine what it looks like and what it feels like um, if if you don't do it yourself, I think. And it's especially interesting in diving because the human body is... Um, I mean, everyone can feel differently uh, some dimensions of the water. For instance, the inner ear. I think everyone has a different inner ear. Uh, so some people will get very dizzy at a certain depth uh, or we need to equilibrate the ear in a different way compared to others. It's it's very subjective. And you are, I read on your website, a dive master. Yeah. This sounds, yeah, like, lo- this sounds like a 70s heavy metal rock band. Right, or, isn't or that cool? album title, right? <laughs> No, no. So, Julie E.A. Le Dive Master. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I love I love teaching. Uh, I I've always did, and so becoming a diver at some point in it made sense for me to to get the certification in order to be able to to train other other divers. Although dive master is like the first instruction level uh certification in the paddy system so i wouldn't be able to i mean i wouldn't have the authorization to fully train someone to get a certification but i can um guide less experienced divers for instance uh in a dive i can do um i can do the first dive with someone like baptism uh this kind of stuff so that it's really nice yeah and this is Paddy, I'm just looking it up, is the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a US-based system, but it's really worldwide. Now. It's, okay. I think, the most commonly, uh, the most common diving association and, and certification program. Now, unsurprisingly, since you're a pilot and a dive commander, I read on your website that you're a member of something I don't know about, which is the Explorers Club. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think I got elected as as a fellow of this organization as a result of all these different, very different experiences. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually pretty recent because uh, I got elected a few months ago. And it's a it's a, an organization again based in the United States but uh, international now that gathers what we call explorers. Uh, some people self-define as professional explorers, like going in Arctic, for instance, or or divers or archaeologists. I mean, there are different kind of professions represented in this organization. 
uh, astronauts as well. So it's basically a group of of people who are interested in exploring extreme environments and yeah there are a lot of um of people who who were the first to access some territory or do something like the first person who went to the higher uh higher mountain or the deeper pond underwater you know, this kind of this kind of uh, activities and I want to ask you about your pretty new book in a moment. But prior to that, I want to ask you about the place of the visual in your work. You're editor of uh, a noted journal, Visual Studies. Perhaps you could talk a bit about that. But the work of the visual in sociology, which to my way of thinking, has always been rather marginalized. Uh, You know, the visual in sociology is photographs of Max Weber or Emile Durkheim uh, or... Carlito Marx, or maybe Simone de Beauvoir, but it's not central, it seems to me. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's been a long way for visual sociology or visual methods in social sciences um, in order to get a certain legitimation. Um it's still not there depending on the country uh, because, for instance, between the United States and France, the, the institutional culture of academia is very different. Uh, disciplines have evolved and have been institutionalized in a very different way. Uh, so it's much more common to have visual sociology classes in the United States, for instance, compared to France, where the the training in sociology remains very uh classical i would say but it also depends on the universities and it's it's actually starting to change i saw i noticed uh, several uh, university departments in france that explore what we call creative methods in general so not only visual but like sensory uh, ethnography sound studies uh using theater in sociology um for instance there's a very interesting method that we call ethno theater which consists of doing interviews and uh, writing a theater play based on this interview to reenact some of the situations um, discussed in the interview. So it's it's really interesting to do with students, for instance. Um, so there is this growing interest for creative methods in general, right? And um, we also tend to forget how visuals have always been an important part of uh, anthropology and sociology. I mean, the first anthropologists, uh, including Marcel Mauss, Claude Lévi-Strauss, they all used uh, images or kind of visuals in their work. They started to take photographs or shoot films when they could, well, depending on the evolution of technologies. Um, Jean Rouge is considered as one of the first uh, ethnographic filmmakers. And his idea is is a good way to summarize why visuals uh, matter for social sciences. His rationale for using film was that, so he was studying uh, a tribe in uh, in Ghana and he was interested in showing, not telling, but showing what it looks like because he was thinking, if I, sh- if I try to explain with words 
what this dance or these costumes look like to people living in France in, in the 1950s, what they would picture and imagine would probably be very different from what it, it is actually uh, in the reality. So uh, showing a film was a way to like be more accurate and, and yeah, providing a proof, so to speak, to the social reality he wanted to convey. Uh, in the most efficient and the most accurate way possible. And yet, the people he films are often acting. They're ordinary people that he meets. And they want to tell a story, and he follows them around the country in different films doing things. But they see themselves as acting. So I, I think there's something quite remarkable in that interplay of documentation and invention. In uh, in Rouge, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is always some form of reenactment, uh, but it depends on on the kind of ethnographic film. There are so many subgenres today in ethnographic filmmaking. It's absolutely insane and and so stimulating. I love it. Um, but yeah, there is there is a part of reenactment in that, uh, and. I mean, most of the time, documentary films are based on scripts, for instance, um, which doesn't make sense, right? Because if you want to 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 show a film about a social reality, you just you could imagine you just take your camera, go there, and film whatever happens. Uh, but actually, in order to get funding, most of the time, we need to have a script, so we need to write in advance the story um of the dark country well we have no idea what's going to happen which is also very counterintuitive but there's always this especially in film this balance um between like yeah the the actual reality you can shot and and the, the part of construction uh around it because you have to build a narrative and even if even if you don't write a script, the editing, the film editing itself is a way to build a narrative. So there is a part of invention as well in there uh, because you build a storyline based on the, the footage you have. You cannot, you, you can't just show the footage out there as they are. It would be just impossible to watch for people. There, there has to be a story, right? Um, and this is why film editing is also interesting as a, as a part of scholarship. It's interesting to think about different way uh, you can convey knowledge and build a story uh, differently than with an academic article, like how you build the story through film editing, for instance. And visual studies as a journal is not only about film, is it? Um, it's about every kind of visual methods. Yeah. It started as a visual sociology journal. Um, in the, I mean, it was developed by a community of scholars who created what is today known as the International Visual Sociology Association. And the journal is still published today on behalf of, of this association, the IVSA. And um, over the years, um, I think those those scholars have realized how wide uses of visuals can be in social sciences. And there was also, uh, because visual sociology has, uh, was so uh, marginalized at the time, there was really a stake 
legitimizing these kind of practices. So it it made sense to open uh, the the scope of the journal to other social sciences that use visual. So the journal is really about today uh, interdisciplinary dialogue about how uh, how people how scholars use visuals in their research, and that could be photography, film, graphs, illustration, could be anything because the term visual itself is very broad. As long as those visuals are part of, as long as they inform our understanding of the social reality, this is basically what the journal is about. Okay, that's the way that you define it as sociology. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. And I have to ask you about uh, two other things. One, uh, the first of these is an article that I haven't read yet. I don't know whether it's out. I haven't seen it, but it's listed in uh, as forthcoming, I think, and it's Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, and it's about a feminist ethnography that is subterranean and whether the possibilities for this. Could you, my apologies for not having read it, I haven't found it, could you share with us some of what you say in that and what the issues are? Absolutely. Uh, it was published online uh, two or three weeks ago, I think, and it was officially um, like published as part of an issue this morning, actually, so the timing is really good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's an article about um, so my feedwork with commercial divers, uh, like why I wanted to become a diver myself as part of this research because for me like doing interviews or observations from the surface wasn't enough i needed to go to see what it looks like underwater what what does divers actually do in their work um, under the surface and that is impossible to do unless you are a diver yourself or mm-hmm. for safety reasons or uh, legal reasons obviously um and so I explain why I, I I wanted to do this training despite the the, the physical cost of, of the training because it can be very dangerous and it's demanding. Yeah, like you have a, a bunch of medical examinations to do in order to enter the training. Um, and it's also a very sexist profession because it's a masculine, many man-dominated profession uh so there's this whole set of values representations and discourses around masculinity deployed in the daily practices and equipments used in in um in this profession it's really interesting to experience oneself as well for instance uh most of the equipment used by commercial divers is based on masculine standards like suits or helmets or gloves because it's standard sizes um and that means that if your body doesn't fit the standard you have an increased risk exposure because water could enter the helmet for instance if it's too large uh, which happens during my training um and this is why I I needed to become a diver myself and do this training mm. myself because I wouldn't have been able to identify this kind of dynamics which are very interesting and very important in the profession um, yeah. if I didn't experience them myself. So the article is about that and how 
along the way, like being a diver myself, this fieldwork actually raised uh, ethical issues in terms of feminist environmental theory. Uh, for instance, how doing welding or drilling underwater or installing pipes or uh, a concrete beds to install a walking site or how these kind of activities can have a long-term damage on the underwater ecosystem. And so about, yeah, how, how it's, it's possible to articulate the, the ethical concerns that can arise in fieldwork and, and, and the continuation of fieldwork. And the article ends with some consideration about how visual methods can actually be a way to embrace these kind of ethical issues in a different way. Uh, I especially rely on a feminist theory of aesthetics uh, with the idea that through aesthetics and consideration of um, the sublime of underwater species, for instance, this mm -hmm. how this kind um, it's a help uh, support a, an um, an ethical concern towards those species, and how using photography, especially experimental photography and filmmaking. Can be a way to develop a dialogue with the the, the subaquatic non-human as a response to these ethical mm. issues raised in fieldwork. And I'm thinking that ecofeminism, in many ways, in terms of its mythical genealogies, begins with Françoise de Bonne. No, it's a absolutely yeah a French point of origin, French argument. At least that's the first encounter that I had with it when I was an undergraduate. And her book came out and it really transformed the way a lot of us thought, no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are so many sub uh, subcategories or sub-theories or different terms used for uh, feminist theory. I, I tend to use ecofeminism also based on my French uh, literature. Um, but we talk also about what well, feminist theory or ecocriticism um ecofeminism as such is really uh, is really more developed in France as you say and I tend to refer in my work and when I when I try to explain what environmental feminist theory is to students especially undergraduate students I like to use um the work of Val Plumwood especially her book from 1993 called Feminism and the Mastery of Nature, because it's an absolutely brilliant analysis of how gender-based violence and ecological damage uh, are connected through how both of these uh, experiences are the result of Western rationality and how modern science and technologies um, uh, conceive the natural environment as we mentioned earlier, as a resource to exploit, right? And how, uh, like in social rep gender representations, uh, how masculinity tends to uh, be linked in this Western rationality to uh, reason and culture and how uh, femininity and female bodies tend to be um, linked in this Western rationality to nature and emotions and how this opposition you know can have uh, can result in in a wide range of 
practices of exploitation and, and violence, both toward nature and toward uh, women. And I'd like to ask you now, if I may, uh, Prof. Julie, about the thread of water. Uh, that's thread with a D, not threat with a T. <laughs> right. Case, in case it doesn't sound that way when I say it. The thread of water, because here you talk about fluidity, and that includes uh, queer ways of thinking about water, queer ways of thinking about meeting points and differences. I wonder if you could tell us a, a wee bit about the book, the thread with a D of water. Absolutely. So this book resulted from um, my own questioning about like the ethical concerns I had during my fieldwork and relationship with water as as an element, as an environment, uh, in terms of feminist and queer ethics. And I was very much influenced by another uh, feminist scholar, feminist and queer scholar, uh, Astrid Animanis, who is in uh, Canada. And a few years ago, she developed uh, a theory called hydrofeminism, and the baseline of this theory is that we should consider a bit more how the human body is connected to water because fluid and water are everywhere. Um, and in doing so, we should considering we should consider a bit more how human bodies are deeply connected, intimately connected to water uh, as part of uh, the same ecosystem. There is no distinction between water and the human body, right? And uh, and this is a way to like reconnect to uh, ecological considerations that we can find not only in feminism and queer theory, but also in indigenous ecologies, considering like more in a holist kind of framework how uh, how human beings are not separated from the natural environment as we tend to understand in western science and, and, uh, and rationality but how this um, how every form of life is connected in a way or another you know, and how this how this drives to uh, more care and ethics toward other forms of life as well could I ask you about a couple of possible influences that we haven't mentioned? And my apologies if they're not influences and they're not important to you. The first is Bruno Latour. And the second is cosmology, cosmovisions of indigenous peoples in territories that have been occupied, colonized, invaded by the British, the Germans, the French, the Dutch, the Belgians, etc. Um, so I wondered if you could reflect on where Latour figures in this or doesn't and where these cosmologies that try to integrate human nature with other forms of nature uh, might be important in understanding water. Absolutely. Uh, those are both, both brilliant uh, considerations. So Bruno Latour um, has been a very important figure for me as a student, especially because I started, um, I mean, my background is in sociology of science and especially uh, laboratory ethnography. So, of course, Bruno Latour was uh, like an obvious reference, although I was 
I didn't share at the time most of his uh, theoretical considerations. I was more like uh, there was a, a kind of theoretical opponent at the time of the publication of uh, the Laboratory Life by uh, Bruno Latour and Wulgar, Steve Wulgar, uh, who was Michael Lynch and who was more kind of realist uh, epistemological guy and was more the Lynch side uh, for that. Um, but Latour has always been very in my intellectual landscape, that that's for sure. And being older and getting more experience in this field of research, I started to understand a bit more the relevance and the interest of, of Latour's uh, uh, theory uh, in terms of social constructivism and especially in terms of the interdependency of, of um, human and non-human forms of life. And the the second point about uh, indigenous cosmologists, it's very present in my work. It's, a, it's um, actually since my PhD research, because uh, so my PhD was about, as I mentioned, uh, astronauts and outer space exploration. And when I started to do interviews with people uh, working for the European Space Agency, for instance, they all, absolutely all of them, mentioned how space exploration and exploration in general is part of the human being's DNA. It's part of or you know, it's it's part of a biology somehow. It's it's supposed to be universal. It's what human beings do. And I felt very uncomfortable with it because because it's first because it's a form of universalization and, and second because this universalization is based on the biologization of the social process. It's like explaining rationality by something biological, uh, which doesn't make sense for sociologists. And a way to open a discussion about, about that for me was to rely on indigenous cosmologies, especially Inuit and Native American Pueblo uh, cosmologies. There is a wonderful piece published by Jen Young in the 1970s about how... Um, Native American Pueblo were uh, considering the Apollo moon landing, the Apollo space program, and how they were very uh, puzzled by NASA's space strategy in terms of, like, why do you need to build a rocket and go to the moon to sample, which is a form of violence for the moon as a form of life, like sampling part of the soil you know, uh, for scientific analysis, while... We know the moon very well because we travel there in our dreams and our rituals every day. Uh, and so it's really interesting to have this this opposition, uh, let's say different cosmologies, and to show how much uh, nothing is universal uh, because it's it's very culturally grounded and Western um, Western cultures have always been in this tendency of universalizing because it's part of the colonial process, right? You you access the territory, you develop your culture there, and you do whatever you need to present this culture as the only culture possible and the dominant standard for human evolution. Uh, but it's really interesting to think about those different um processes and systems of values and how this has how these systems of values have a strong impact on 
um, the kind of knowledge we developed because this had uh, this had framed the development of science, modern science and technologies, and industrialization, development of the rocket industry, and so on. Uh, so this indigenous uh, cosmologies or ecologies still have today a strong impact on my work. It's, uh, it's really something I rely on strongly. Well, Prof, I had just uh, one more question for you, if I may, and then I'd like to invite you to add anything you wish to what we've discussed already. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. Beautiful. So my last question is really an obvious one. What's next? Hmm. You've gotten into uh... planes and learned to fly them. You've done dangerous commercial diving. You know about getting into suits to protect the human body at the same time as you want to expand our understanding of what human bodies are. So what's next on this explorer's horizon that doesn't want to be colonial, right? Right, um, which is a very complicated task. I mean, the very notion of exploration is colonial. Um, so I'm not done with commercial divers and and with water. I think I will stick with this field for yeah. for a while, uh, maybe a few years. Yeah. Uh, and there are so many different diving activities. Uh, there's cave diving, ice diving, uh, recreational or professional diving. Uh, so there's a lot of things to study in that field. Um. I guess I will more be developing, um, so my background is in feminist theory and methods, but the more I uh, I evolve in this field, the more I find interest in queer theory and, and methods, uh, including performance, which is really more commonly used by queer artists and scholars. Um, so I think this is, this will constitute a big part of what I will be doing in the, in the, within the next few months or a few years. Well, that's exciting. And to conclude matters for today, are there things you would like to add to what we've discussed? Um, I don't know. It's it's a tricky question. We talked about so many things. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I would, I would be really interested in in having more conversations about experimental practice and performance, uh, especially performance in sociology, because it can be a bit counterintuitive for sociologists to use this kind of methods because it's very far away from the empirical uh, foundation of the discipline. Right? It's it's more. Um, well, it's, it can be feel like exotic and very experimental but it makes a lot of sense to me because of this uh, relationship to the positionality of the scholar and can also be a way to engage with students from a wide variety of backgrounds I'm interested in in for instance uh, decolonial practices in pedagogy and teaching and decolonial teaching uses a lot of creative methods like poetry um, sound recording music uh, because all these forms of transmitting knowledge uh, are ways to counteract the, the, the dominance of scholarly writing as a legitimate form of transmitting knowledge. Uh, and these are practices used in non-Western culture uh, very dominantly. 
and I would be interested to see more conversations around this, uh, especially in France. Julie, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've enjoyed our little internet uh, email correspondence uh, in arranging this, and it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I feel excited and thrilled. Uh, I actually can see my my goggles that are drying from my little swim in a swimming pool this morning. Not quite the real thing, but something. And oh, that's nice. It's it's wonderful to learn so much from you and to appreciate your work. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you again for having me. I, I tremendously enjoyed this conversation, and I hope uh, your listeners or watchers uh, we have we find some interest in this conversation as well. <laughs>